0: Your Bibles to Exodus. We're looking at Exodus 11 through the first part of 13. So, if you turn to Exodus 12, we'll read some from there. And again, just want to invite you to come out this evening for our uh, Sunday night service. Should be a great time of fellowship together. Exodus. We've been uh, looking at these these nine plagues, and as we come to chapter 11 we begin to to read about the, this final plague, the, the death of the firstborn, and there's a warning of it in, in chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, there's some instructions to the Israelites about how they can be spared, and the, the, their their deliverance is not based upon their own works, their deliverance is not based upon them being more righteous than the Egyptians, it's based upon God's action and his grace, and so we're going to kind of think through that this morning and how God calls them to to think upon that, to meditate upon that as he delivers his people. And so, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. in Exodus, We'll read Exodus chapter 12 and we'll look through some some truths here. I'll, I'll read some parts of it and I'll, I'll have you be seated and I'll, I'll continue to read a little bit more. But if you need to, to sit down, please feel free to do so. The Lord said to Moses, this is verse 1 of Exodus 12. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that, that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that... They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted it, its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but... What every one needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses if Anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. You may be seated. I'm going to continue reading a little more here. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land the Lord will give you as he has promised. You shall keep the servants. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians. But spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was... Not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds and as you have said and be gone. Bless me also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Rejoice in your deliverance of us from the domain of of darkness into your kingdom. We thank you for the instruction we receive here as we study the Passover about what all this means and the truths you would have us meditate on. Father, our hearts are heavy this morning as we think about sin and its its consequences and and brokenness and and restoration. We, We pray for you to do your work in our lives. It's necessary for you to be glorified and for us to, to be made like your son Jesus and we pray that you would uh, help us in this community of faith. We pray for other communities of faith in our area. We think uh, especially of our sister churches, uh, Bethany Baptist and Living Hope. We pray for your special grace on those churches this morning. We love them and we thank you for them. And we pray Uh, help us to to understand your word this morning we pray this in jesus's name amen i think i've shared this before but whenever whitney and i were dating she was afraid that if we got married she'd be married to a husband who didn't celebrate christmas she thought that because i said i'm not going to celebrate christmas there were a lot of things that scared her about our relationship back then, but and me. But you know what you have to understand is, you know, you go back twenty years, and twenty years ago, I was, uh, I was sometimes way too argumentative and intense and dogmatic about things that were really not all that important, or called that a person would be called to be intense or dogmatic about, and for a period of a couple months, I kind of got frustrated at Christmas and kind of began arguing with people about how you should celebrate Christmas or shouldn't celebrate Christmas. And my logic was kind of this. I said, well, the Bible never tells us to celebrate Christmas, and uh, Christmas has become very confusing. We we say we're celebrating Christmas, but what we're actually celebrating is kind of like some of the Bible story and some of the, like legends we've been parted onto it. We place too much importance on it. It's It's way too materialistic, and we We encourage people who aren't even Christians to celebrate this weird holiday that's kind of Christian-y, but also kind of materialistic, and it's just be better not to celebrate it. And that was kind of my my kick for a couple months, but it was summer, so Christmas changed a little bit, right? Now, I still think, uh, you know, along with Daniel from 20 years ago, I I still think there's some confusion uh, regarding Christmas. One time, a, a pastor gave me a a pen, and it—he'd um, um, kind of ordered it out of a catalog, and with those pens that came with stock messages. And then on the other side, you can kind of have something that you want engraved. And so he had engraved his name and contact information, and then a little phrase that said "Keep Christ in Christmas." But on the other side of the pen, it said "Happy Holidays." So he gave us this pen that said "Keep Christ in Christmas," and you turn it over, and it said "Happy Holidays." So I don't know if he even understood the the mixed messages that he was giving in that, but. Christmas can be confusion. I've been, th- I've been thinking about all this, and you know, why do we celebrate holidays? What's the purpose of all this? I've been thinking about that as I have been thinking about the Passover and the different feasts that we're going to be talking about in, in a few months. I've been thinking about this past week, the past few weeks, as I've been reading through some of these chapters and listening to them uh, while while running and just kind of thinking through the dominant themes. And And I do think that there's some God-glorifying ways to celebrate the holidays of our culture. I think it's, it's glorifying to God to fellowship with other people, and so Christmas and other holidays in our culture can be great times to glorify God as we fellowship with friends and family, and I think that's great. I think it's also good to engage our culture. And so if there's a day that our culture is observing that we can that we can. You know, participate in it as well and be, be part of people's lives. I think that's a good thing. You know, when I, when I was growing up, for a time, our family did not recognize Halloween at all. There was, you know, we kind of sometimes did like fall things on October thirty first. But then later, as I grew up, my, my parents kind of started engaging our neighbors on Halloween and we pass out candy. And that's kind of what our family does now. We're not into all the, uh, you know, we're not going to be dressing up as clowns on Halloween, obviously, but. Um, that's gonna be a dated reference if you ever listen to this in a couple of years, but uh, you know we don't do those. But you know the idea that my neighbors are coming to my home and I get to give them something is you know, it's kind of a fun thing for our family and get to go to their homes as well. But the other value of recognizing special days for the believer—not not just fellowship, not just engagement in our culture—but there's a value to thinking about God in a special way on certain days. I think that's maybe what we miss out on most profoundly as as Christians in our North American culture. We don't have the, the days set aside to just meditate upon truths about God and his character, perhaps the way that God would desire us to. I was thinking about that as I looked at the story of the Passover. You know, the exodus, the salvation of people from Egypt is this is this profound event. It's this key redemptive event in the Old Testament. The salvation of the, of the people of, of Israel from, from Egypt into this land that God promises them is this, this picture that God points to again and again. It's, it's a picture of, of our redemption, our, our deliverance from a domain of darkness into God's marvelous light, his kingdom. And, and the Passover lamb is this picture of, of Jesus. And so, it, what's remarkable to me, as as I look at this story of the Exodus, this this major event in the Old Testament, what's amazing to me is the proportion of time that God spends on the observance of it. In other words, there's a lot more time spent on how to celebrate what happens here than there is on the actual event. The tenth plague and the people's exit from Exodus, or exit from Egypt, is is relatively brief compared to the amount of time spent on here's how to observe it, here's how to remember it. What that tells me is that remembering things and thinking about them and their theological importance is very important to God. There are redemptive truths here in the Passover. By redemptive truths, I mean Truths that proclaim elements of God's redemption of us, redemptive truths that are crucial for us to know and to think on and to meditate constantly if we're to live life the way that God wants us to. There are truths in this remembrance of this event that have to do with the reality of sin and the reality of judgment. And the reality of God's grace and the reality of a substitutionary atonement, Christ dying for us. There are all these things in this observance of Passover that are redemptive truths that God would have us meditate on and think on in order to walk rightly with him. And that's kind of the main thing that I want to share this morning and next week as we look at these chapters. The truths that the Passover calls us to remember are essential redemptive truths that change our lives as we meditate on them. That's what I want us to think about this week and next, that the truths that the Passover calls us to remember are essential redemptive truths that change our lives as we meditate on them. And and I want to unpack that statement by kind of asking two questions, and we're not going to get all the way through the first question this morning, but the first question is, What does the Passover teach us? As we think about this Passover that God calls his people to observe and the accompanying Feast of Unleavened Bread, what does the Passover teach us? What are these redemptive truths that God believes are so essential for us to understand? Here's the first one. Here's the first one. The Passover helps us to understand the terror of God's judgment. The Passover helps us understand the terror of God's judgment. Look look at your Bibles with me, if you would, in chapter 11 of Exodus. And as you came to the end of, of chapter 10, we'll remember as we kind of look through these, these different plagues. Remember, Moses has just talked to Pharaoh, and he's told Pharaoh, uh, you're, you're never going to see my face again. And then what happens here in in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, I think is a, is a recap of some things that took place earlier, reminding uh, Pharaoh of what would take place next. Verse 1, you translate it, it, says, the Lord had said, in other words, these were events that had taken place earlier, this is helping us understand that. And the Lord had said to Moses, these first three verses tell us, first of all, he told him, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to, this is what's going to happen, Pharaoh's going to drive you away completely when he lets you go, after I bring this last plague. You need to tell the people of Israel to get ready. They're going to ask their Egyptian neighbors for silver and and jewelry. And then God says, God's been orchestrating this entire thing, as we talked about last week. God tells him, uh, or or God had given the people Pharaoh in the side of the Egyptians, and and Moses Pharaoh. And then you come to verses uh, 4. Through eight here, and and, and as we look at verses four through eight, we see um, we see some really important things about the idea of the terror of God's judgment. Here's Moses speaking. He says, "Okay, this is what God says about midnight. I'm going to go into the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. The firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, he's going to die. The firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, she's going to die. Every firstborn of the cattle, they are going to die as well." Then he says in verse 6, this this verse that helps us understand the immense tragedy of what is about to take place. He says, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. This judgment that's about to take place is going to be a, a judgment that brings about misery that is beyond comprehension. As it's contemplated, there's just a sense of, of, of terror as you think about the depth of the judgment that's about to take place on these people. Even now, reading it thousands of years after the event, there's there's a sense of, of heaviness and weight to this passage as you think about the terror of what's about to happen to the Egyptians. It says in verse 7, But Not even a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. The purpose is so you can know that Yahweh, the Lord, makes a distinction between Egypt and and Israel. He wants them to understand there's there's distinction that's taking place here as well. The distinction is not based upon the merit of the people, but upon the grace of God. Here's some principles for application as, as we think about this. Think about this truth that the Passover teaches us that there's there's terror in God's judgment. How does this help us? Why are these things that we need to meditate on, and be reminded of? One, we need to remember, it helps us remember that, that God warns us about future judgment because of his kindness. God's warning of future judgment is actually an act of of his kindness. And and all judgment that has taken place in human history to, to date is terrifying. And yet it's also temporal, it's for limited duration, and, and God in His grace allows us to see these pictures of judgment and, and be warned by them, because there's coming a judgment that is that is not temporal in nature. There's no end to it. There's a warning for people here, a warning of a future judgment that you and I should take heed of as well, which causes see that God is kind even in his warning about this. Moses warns, hey, this is what's about to happen. And even as the judgment happens, that judgment of the Egyptian firstborn is a a picture of even a future judgment. It's kind of God to warn us. Second principle to think of here for application. God calls on us to warn others about future judgment, right? God calls on us to warn others about future judgment. Ezekiel chapter 3, he tells Ezekiel that he's to be a watchman. He's to to warn others about impending doom. And Ezekiel isn't responsible for how people respond, but he's responsible for making sure that he proclaims this message. This task, and maybe you've experienced this as well, this, this task of praying, proclaiming God's judgment to others is, is not a pleasant task, right? It's a task that feels very heavy. It's not enjoyable to tell people that what they're doing is wrong, and that there's consequences to that, even consequences that are eternal, because it makes you feel it makes you feel like you yourself are judgmental. It makes you feel um, scared as you think about the potential loss of, of friendships. And, and certainly I can identify with that. I've, I've lost friends because of the things that we've taught here at Bethany Community Church that I believe are God's words. We've, we've lost people from the church. Because of this reality that we believe God is going to judge in the future and currently, it's not a pleasant thing to talk about. In fact, I, you know, I, I'm not a person who en- enjoys a, a controversy. I don't enjoy uh, arguing with people. God says this, or Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 20, and I, I identify with this sometimes. Jeremiah says. Whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become to me a reproach and derision all day long. He's, he's talking here about the reality of God's judgment. Jeremiah has had to proclaim this message. And, and even as he says things, he's like, oh boy, I wish I wasn't having to say this because he recognizes that the consequences it has on his relationships with other people. And he says, "But, but... If I say, well, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to mention him or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And for the believer, I think this is a reality. He said, boy, I don't want to be engaged in this proclamation of, of a message that offends people and gets people mad at me. So if I, but but, but if, I, if I'm quiet and I love people, I cannot help but express this reality of what God has told me to tell people that I love. But there is a God to whom we are all accountable. And all of us must someday appear before him. And all of us need to turn from our sins and recognize, boy, I, I do not have the ability in and of myself to stand before a holy God. I need righteousness. And my message of coming judgment is a, is a means by which I proclaim, hey, here's where you can get the righteousness. Because I love you. Another thought of application of this this truth that the Passover helps us understand the terror of God's judgment another thing to think about in application is God bears his own wrath right God bears his own wrath the firstborn of the Israelites is spared on the basis of the blood of the the lamb and yet at the same time God did not spare his own son he is the lamb whose blood was spilled the final thought of application as we think about this reality that the Passover teaches us the terror of God's judgment. Another thing to think about here is this, this fear is not a bad fear. God uses fear to sanctify us. It's kind of a remarkable thing, right? God uses fear to sanctify us. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And as we think about God, there's a fear because we don't want to displease Him. We want God to find pleasure in us. Acts chapter 5 talks about the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 11 it says, The fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Acts chapter 9 says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And then listen to how it describes the growth of the church. What's taking place in the growth of the church in the first century? It says they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. church was being multiplied see those two things they're walking in the fear of the lord and in the comfort of the holy spirit the fear of the lord tells me okay this this god is a is a holy god a majestic god and and i, I don't want to, to displease this god and not only because of his of his wrath which is real and i fear but also because of of his holiness and his love and, his, and all these things and there's a fear of displeasure and yet at the same time I walk not only in the fear of the Lord, but in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit confirming that I am his son or his daughter and encouraging me with the, that truth. Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others what we are is known to God. I hope it is also known to your conscience, he says. He's talking there about the idea that we're all going to appear before God. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul, in Ephesians 4.30, would say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We don't, have, we don't have a desire to cause God grief, and so it motivates us to walk in holiness. 1 Timothy 5, very sobering passage, talks about leaders who are in sin. It says, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And as we hear... Of people in ministry, people we love dearly, being ensnared by sin, and we hear of that. What does it cause? It causes us, us fear. Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline of the Lord. First Peter calls us to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. The wicked, it says in Romans 3.18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. The Passover helps us understand the terror of God's judgment. And the people of Israel were called on a yearly basis for a period of days to meditate upon this truth that God's judgment is is a terrible thing and we've been delivered from it. It was an important redemptive truth to remember, not just the idea of God's grace, not just the idea that God loves you, both of which are powerful truths that must be meditated on, but there's also the sense of, I need to remember what I was saved from. I need to understand the reality of falling into the hands of a living God. God's wrath is as terrible as his love is beautiful. Here's the second thing the Passover helps us understand. Number two, the Passover helps us understand the preciousness of the Lamb's blood. The Passover helps us understand the preciousness of the Lamb's blood. Look at chapter 12 with me. So we look here, what do, what do we see? We see God instructing Moses not only about what's going to take place, but about how deliverance can occur, how they can be spared. And he gives instructions about how they can be spared, and the instructions are setting up this idea of, of future observance as well. He says uh, this this thing that's about to happen this month, because of the the importance of what's going to happen, it's going to be the the first for you—it's going to be the first of your year—and and I want you to to tell everyone on the tenth day of this this month, this new first month of the year, take a lamb, and then he says um, it needs to be a lamb without blemish, and and get a lamb in accordance with the number of people in your house. If there's just one or two of you, grab a neighbor, and then he says on the so it's the tenth day of the month, and on the fourteenth day of the month, kill the lambs at twilight, and then take the lamb's blood and put on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses that they eat it and eat the flesh, cook it, eat it, don't leave any of it over, eat it with bitter herbs. And then he says, and eat it in haste. Your belt fastened, your sandals in your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. This, the idea as they put the blood on the posts of their door, there's this recognition that Deliverance is about to take place. That God is about to save. And the key key verse, I think, is there in verse 13. He just said, I'm going to execute judgment. I, I'm the Lord. I have the authority to do this. And he says in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, in other words, this this blood is a sign of something, I believe, something future, something that's, about, that's going to take place. Is When I see the, the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if God is going to judge, there has to be some basis upon which he judges some and gives others mercy. And what becomes very clear as we look at the story of the Israelites is he doesn't look at the Egyptians and look at the Israelites and say, Okay, Israelites... You guys are good and the Egyptians are bad. As we continue to go through the Pentateuch, and what we've already seen as we looked at the Israelites, is these Israelites are a mess. There are some profound problems with the Israelites, and it's hard to imagine that the Egyptians would have done any worse than the Israelites if God had selected them. But God, in His grace, selects the Israelites, He doesn't spare the Egyptians. He makes the distinction, and what is that distinction based on? Not their goodness, but the blood, the blood of the Lamb, God's mercy. Now, there's a lot to say here, and we'll talk more about this next week. But Let me just give you a, another few principles of application here. As we think about the Passover and meditating upon these, these redemptive truths, one application is this, um, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's, there's no forgiveness. Leviticus seventeen eleven says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it for you, I, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Read that in Hebrews 9.22. Another principle of application here is that that Jesus is the Passover lamb who died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 5, says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John, chapter 1, verse 29, John sees Jesus coming toward me and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 36, he looked and as Jesus and as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus would say this about himself in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them. scatters them he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep i'm the good shepherd i know my own my own know me just as the father knows me and i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep jesus is the passover lamb who died for our sins but there's another point of application here it goes even deeper Sometimes maybe you've heard this illustration. We we're kind of we try to describe this this idea of the atonement here. This, this the theological term here is the substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ is substituted for us, just as the lamb is substituted for the people. Jesus Christ is substituted for us. And sometimes to kind of help people understand this, we've used an illustration of a judge. Maybe you've heard this, right? Where a judge is uh, you you appear before a judge and a judge sees you and sees that you are guilty and says okay you are you're guilty of this of this uh, traffic violation and so your fine is a hundred dollars and renders the judgment and then the judge takes off his robe and comes around the bench and, and hugs you embraces you calls you his son or something and and then pays the hundred dollars for you and I, I think there's some that's, that's helpful as we think about, okay, Jesus Christ dies for us. He bears the penalty for us. But what Jesus does goes far beyond even that. That illustration falls short in some ways, too. Because here's the third principle of application. Jesus is not only the Passover, who, Passover lamb who died for our sins, he's also the Passover lamb who gave us his righteousness. You see, the judge, even as the judge stands there and pays your penalty, he can't make you innocent. He can take the penalty for sin, but he can't make you not guilty. What Jesus does is is not only does he say, okay, I'm going to take your sin upon me, but Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb, we'll talk more about this as we come to the book of Hebrews, he's far better than any sacrificial lamb because he doesn't, doesn't just deal with the sin, okay, no no immediate punishment, no, no uh, death by plague for you. What Jesus Christ does is he, he takes on your sin and bears the penalty for your sin. So he, he takes that on. But at the same time, he gives you something. He gives you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He says in verse 20, we implore you, we beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Then he says in verse 21, for our sake he made him, God made Jesus, he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's how we're brought into the church. Throughout Scripture, we see that the church was obtained by, by God's own blood, Jesus' own blood. The Passover also helps us understand the eternality of the gospel message. That's the third thing I want you to think about. What does this Passover teach us? It, it teaches us the in- eternality of the gospel message. And as we look at verses 14 through 20 of chapter 12, again, what's what's amazing to me as i look at this passage is how much time is spent dealt with okay here's how i want you to observe this and here's how i want you to think about this and here's how i want you to remember this as we come to verses 14 through 20 we see here the instructions for this this feast of unleavened bread so it's this passover meal connected with this feast of unleavened bread it's really sometimes just called the passover the feast of unleavened bread. it's it's the same same time period and he says in verse 14, This day shall be a, for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast throughout your generations as a statute forever. That's verse 14. He talks about the feast of unleavened bread, and so they're to, to eat this, this, this bread without yeast to help them remember the, the haste in which they left and how they're he tells them how they're supposed to celebrate it. We'll talk more about that uh, perhaps next week. And then verse 17, he says. He says, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this day, this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Now, what does this mean? It means that these truths that the Passover are proclaiming are not truths that are going to stop being observed by us. In fact it's interesting as you come to ezekiel and, and ezekiel you see the passover described as being observed in the millennial kingdom and so in, in some form or fashion even in a, in a future age this passover feast is going to be observed by believers as we think about these redemptive truths and i don't understand all of that but i believe that's what scripture is teaching us what we see here. And we'll talk about this next week as we talk about as we take communion. Is that these these truths about us needing a Savior and about a Passover Lamb dying in our place are truths that, that continue on and on and on? They are eternal truths. They are not truths that exist just for a time period. Two two things I want you to think about. And after these two things, we'll we'll, we'll close for this morning but the first is this you and i have have not just been called out of something we've been called into something we haven't just been called out of the world we've been called to be in christ the people of israel weren't just called out of egypt it wasn't just okay let's get out of egypt and then you know whatever just have fun enjoy the promised land now, there's a specific purpose. They're, they're being called out of Egypt, but they're being called into a land that God has prepared. And he has, I, he has instructions about how they're to worship him in the place in which they go. And a second point of application here is that we are always going to be in Christ that's what it means. That's what I mean when I say the, the eternality of the gospel message. It's not like the gospel message only exists for a, a certain period of time. But this this truth that there's a Passover Lamb who takes our place and we receive His righteousness. That's a truth that is going to last for eternity. We are always going to be in Christ. We were in Christ from eternity past. Second Timothy one nine says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. In other words, there's nothing that God Looked at us and said, "Okay, I'm going to make a distinction because Daniel Bennett is, is so so very awesome, uh, and and you know does this and has this work. I, you know, that's I'm going to draft him for my team. That's not the basis upon which we stand before God. It says, not because of our works. He didn't say this because of our works, but because this is Second Timothy one 9, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What does that mean? That means in eternity past, before I had done any work, God God gave me, in Jesus Christ, salvation. Not appropriated in time, but because of his own reasons, because of his own grace, he, he he gave it to me in Christ Calling before the ages began. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world for for a purpose that we should be holy and blameless before Him. There's a present union with Christ, right? We're united through faith. We receive the benefits of salvation. God saves us. 1 Corinthians 1:30 says, Because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Ephesians 2 talks about how we're saved by God's grace through faith. we're, We're sinners, and even though we've been called to be in Christ from eternity past, there's a moment in which we're sinners, we're underneath God's wrath, and we hear the gospel message and we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We become in him, and Ephesians says... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then what what happens in the future? What we see in Scripture is that we are going to be in Christ on into eternity. Ephesians 1 talks about our inheritance, and it says, In him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's this future union with Christ. We are going to be in him for eternity. And the Passover proclaims that. The Passover proclaims that The Passover, and here's what I want you to think about. This Passover, this, this picture of redemption and deliverance proclaims to us redemptive truths, truths about our salvation in Jesus Christ that change us as we meditate on them. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in his name. We thank you for our redemption in him. Father, continue to sanctify us, continue to help us to walk in your truth As we meditate upon these truths, we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.